The Wainwright Prize, the stories behind the books, brought to you by PlanetPod. Welcome to this special edition of Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter, celebrating the 2020 Wainwright Prize in which we bring you the stories behind the books through interviews with this year's shortlisted authors. Now in its seventh year, the Wainwright Prize for UK Nature Writing is awarded annually to the book which most successfully inspires readers to explore the outdoors and to nurture a respect for the natural world. The Wainwright Prize was founded in memory of Alfred Wainwright, by Francis Lincoln, the publishers of the famous fell walking series, The Pictorial Guides to the Lakeland Fells. There's a strong link between walking and writing. Whether it's striding out across fells or meandering through woodland, the very act of walking seems to unlock and release creativity. What better way to celebrate and commemorate that most famous of walkers than through this prize? This year's prize has been extended to include a second category for books about global conservation and climate change, and the two shortlists reflect the breadth and range of contemporary nature writing, both in the UK and around the world. The Frayed Atlantic Edge by David Gange tells of a remarkable journey by kayak down the Atlantic coast of the UK from Muckle Flugger at the extreme northern tip of Shetland, all the way to the Seven Stones Reef, some 15 miles west of Senan Cove in Cornwall's far southwest. Not only does it chart this remarkable feat of endurance, David's perspective as a historian specialising in 19th century Britain offers an alternative history of our archipelago. David, welcome to Planet Pod and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for the invitation. Really lovely to be here and also to feel like part of this incredible group of writers that you're um, interviewing in turn over these few weeks. Thank you. I mean, it is exciting. The shortlist is amazing and it really covers so many different types of, of writing. And it's fascinating to look at your book as you've approached the writing in a very different way from some of the other authors, particularly. Um, because as a historian, you know, obviously you have a very specific take on this, but you're clearly a keen kayaker. So this isn't just a book about an endurance of paddle test. It, it's actually about, I think, your perspective on, on the whole of the UK. So, so what made you write it? What, what made you set out to write, write the book? Or did you just want an excuse for a very long paddle? Um, I mean, both of those things are most definitely true. Um, so yeah, I'd like you say, I used to write about 19th century history. I used to do lots of my reading and writing um, for that kind of out in mountains. So I, just, I had a habit of taking a rucksack full of books and my little wood fruit sleeping bag and getting myself lost somewhere really memorable for the week. So absorbing myself in a kind of place and in whatever topic I needed to read about, found it a great way of, of really learning something in a way that would stick in my head if I could associate it with the landscape. And um, I used to do lots of things out in mountains with my partner at the time too. Then in 2009, she had a, a really horrific car accident that left her unable to walk for more than a few minutes a day. So we couldn't get into mountains together. And we bought our first kayak this tiny little um, inflatable um, two-person boat that meant we could get outdoors. And from my reading, I began heading out to sea amongst islands rather than mountains. And in doing that, I began to realise in ways that I hadn't before, um, that the communities on our coastlines, especially in the Scottish Highlands and in Ireland, are really badly represented by the ways that we are. Our narratives are so often formed around cities that the coasts get really marginalised. And coastal communities have really different histories. The good times on the coasts were often the bad times inland and vice versa. So I realised that spending that year travelling by kayak from Shetland down to Cornwall could give a really kind of defamiliarising version of what, of what Britain and Ireland are. One formed much less around cities and industrialization and 
kind of enlightenment economy and formed much more around kind of closeness to the natural world, much more around the entanglement between people and environments and other species. Um, and yeah, it gives a really, a really different picture of Britain in that you know, traveling 12 months, the first seven and a half were all in Scotland and only the last touched on England at all. I traveled for five months by the time I reached the second town with a population of more than 600 people. And I was spending um, kind of a really large proportion of the journey in places where other languages uh, rather than English were kind of, uh, might be considered first language. Um, so yeah, I set about training as soon as I realized those things, learning to handle the kind of big rough seas and learning more about those kind of languages and cultures in order to try and piece this faith together. That's really fascinating because, I mean, effectively what you've done is you've replaced the walking of Wainwright with the paddling, haven't you? But it's that sense of being very, very close to your subject matter that's so important. But I'm intrigued by you say that English was not the first language in lots of those communities. Is that because they were speaking Celtic Scot? I mean, what, what, were, what were people speaking? So there are an extraordinary number of languages, far more than um, most people recognise. I mean, so the, there's a, an incredibly powerful, um, strong dialect in Shetland, for instance, known as Shetland, um, that I would class as a language, not right. really just as a dialect. I mean, where we draw the line between a language and a dialect is a political question, not a technical one. Um, and Shetland is full of the most incredibly rich vocabulary for the natural world, right? Dozens and dozens of words for different kinds of seaweed, for different kind of parts of small boats and things too, and for different kind of characteristics of the ocean. We can learn so much ecologically by looking at languages like Shetland. Um, then obviously Scottish Gaelic, um, Irish language, and Welsh as well. And all of these languages um, embody kind of different approaches, attitudes and outlooks, or different philosophies. Um, and in many ways, the English language is very, very strongly tied to kind of growth-based economics, to kind of urban society, whereas um, something like Scottish Gaelic has been, over the last two centuries, much more ecologically aware. It has resisted kind of growth-based economics for two centuries in ways that many parts of English society have only realised they need to do over the last couple of decades. So there's an incredible amount of wisdom, an incredible amount of experience in those languages that I think we ought to be drawing on. So that's another another big thing the book is trying to do, is trying to, to kind of generate awareness that a lot of what we need to kind of combat climate crisis, to kind of create greater awareness of the importance of biodiversity exists already in the history and cultures of our coastlines. We just need to learn to draw on it better. Yeah, and it seems to me a lot of what you're trying to do is to shift our focus and our perspective away from that kind of central urbanised, you know, detached view of, of the world and the environment into something that's both real, as you describe it, but also has been and continues to be in some cases economically and socially enormously important. And I yeah. think people perhaps don't understand that. I mean, we often associate the coast, particularly the southern parts and of the so UK coast, tourism, holidays, beaches, you know, and there's a lot of complaints now that, you know, Cornwall's overrun because there's too many tourists. We don't actually see the underlying economy or the underlying community that is both integral, but also it's under threat, I think, isn't it, in, in lots of cases. But what you're showing is that these communities are really rich in many, many ways, both both in terms of the kind of culture and history, but also what they have to teach us as, as non-coastal dwelling citizens, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everything takes on a kind of different order of importance if you look at it from the coastline. Um, one thing I 
I would like to say with kind of Shetland, for instance, is that in a lot of the places that I'm writing about, um, the decisions made by herrings were far more important than the decisions made by parliaments. So the, the natural world takes on this great importance that isn't necessarily always so evident in cities. So we get a different, different worldview in that sense. Um, and yeah, if there's one thing that the book could achieve, I would love it to be just kind of encouraging people who visit coastlines to go there with a sense of picking up some of the kind of cultural richness that is there rather than kind of traveling and spreading kind of um, urban ideals out to those kinds of regions, recognizing these places as having these kind of incredibly strong histories and cultures, not being kind of wild places in any kind of pure sense, but seeing the kind of cultural contexts behind what makes them look um, perhaps wild or beautiful today. Um, and then, yeah, just kind of enriching that, that worldview that you get. There's a real fragility about the economics of coastal communities, though, isn't there? And I mean, you know, on other episodes of Planet Pod, we've 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 been working with Blue Marine Foundation, who are the ocean conservation charity, and a lot of their work has been about supporting local fishing communities and encouraging people to buy, you know, from local fishing communities, and for us to be selling fish to ourselves rather than exporting it. So the fragility of the economics is is important in this as well. I mean, we don't want these these communities to just be places that we visit to learn about conservation. They have to be real, vibrant, self-supporting communities. Do you have a sense of how that might be possible, you know, moving forward? Because a lot of coastal communities are hollowed out by, by tourism and second homers. Um, yes. Yeah, so um, over the 20th century, there was a really big move to the kind of industrialise aquaculture, like to industrialise agriculture. And, um, History in many ways is a tool we can use to kind of look back past that, to recognize the importance of locality, to recognize that the ways of doing good custodianship and using these coastlines economically, they already exist. These communities know them. The projects like um, one from the National University of Ireland in Galway, looking at Fisher's knowledge on the Aran Islands, are really profoundly important to doing that. We need to scale down our approaches to all these issues. We need to um, recognize the importance of locality and of local knowledge and of experience. Um, and in that way, we can kind of create the culture that can um, resist the kind of big super trawlers and bring, bring fishing back to a kind of much more sustainable um, level done by a larger number of people, creating more kind of employment um, in this kind of small scale way um, while still kind of producing um, the foods that we need for. Um, Irish and UK populations. Um, would you say that you're a historian first or a nature writer first, or are the two inextricably <laughs> linked? Because the, the historical perspective is very important in your writing, isn't it? I mean, it's given an insight into to, to the communities you visit and the journey that you made in a very different way from somebody who possibly looks first and foremost at nature. Yeah, so I think it's been it's been a really, really positive change in nature writing over the last decade. So around a decade ago, um, a lot of nature writers were criticised for treating kind of wild places um, as though they were kind of without difficult histories and without current communities. And that doesn't really happen anymore. I mean, if you look at the Wainwright shortlist this year, it's full of historical writing. I've, I've listened to um, the other podcasts you've done and history got mentioned quite a few times, or at least looking backwards to find the ways of dealing with current crises got mentioned quite a few times. Um, so I think it's a really, really positive shift and one that I'm kind of really happy to be part of. Um, 
So when I was younger, I, I felt like I had a choice for my career between kind of being a historian or doing something to do with nature or going into music. And I, I chose music. And then a few years later, ran away to history and kind of trained as a historian and started writing history books. But I've always really, really, really wanted to integrate those three things um, to, to undo those choices that I didn't want to have to make as a teenager. Um, and this book is the, is the way I've done that. And I've brought, brought those things and brought lots of poetry into it too. Um, I kind of am a frustrated poet, really, and I love reading poets. And these coastlines are full of kind of the very best poetry in the British Isles. So being able to bring that with the music, with, with all the nature into the same package with the history um, has been a really important part of the project. Do you have a passage that you might be able to read and share with listeners that sort of epitomizes the book a little bit to give people a flavour? I do. I thought I would counterintuitively start at the end. <laughs> the journey has finished, so the beginning of my epilogue. Um, and people, people kind of talk a lot about the benefits of being out in nature, the kind of all the kind of benefits to mental health and well-being and those kind of things. We rarely kind of talk about the opposite. And in many ways, coming back from this journey was the most difficult part. I've been kind of out in elements 24 hours a day, lots and lots of days. And then I had to sit in a university office building every day. But, um, end. So I thought I'd, I thought I'd give a bit from here. Um, and yeah, it mentions two people who've been introduced in the book, um, who, um, people might not know. One is Peter Lanyon, the, the artist, the Cornish artist, and the other is Tim Robinson, the, um, incredible cartographer of the West of Ireland. It was a whole year after reaching the Seven Stones that I sat down to write this epilogue. I'd barely been in a kayak or even seen the sea since. Instead, I'd sat in the fourth floor of a red brick building in the heart of England, teaching, writing and administrating. I felt less embedded than ever before in Peter Lanyon's larger powers that define our movement through the world, or Tim Robinson's immensities in which each little place is wrapped. Even the screech of peregrines that nest in the clock tower by my office did little to conjure connection to the Atlantic elements I'd left behind. What I missed most was immersion in constant movement, the worldview from low in the way. I missed the sense of being part of a vast, coherent dynamism. Indoors, I was sometimes unsettled, a condition I could only refer to as the bends, since it was caused by coming up from the sea and sometimes resorted to a sleeping bag in the garden among the foxes and woodpeckers. Never before had I so welcomed rain. Good cold soaking is the best medicine of all. As well as feeling the contrast between two sensory worlds, I found myself more attentive than before to certain characteristics of the urban society I've encountered. The managerial ethos of large modern institutions is one in which standardization is assumed to be a universal good and any independence or eccentricity must be fought for. I prickled anew at every attempt to standardise procedures and felt intensely the contrast between my urban life and the power of locality I'd witnessed in communities I'd travelled through. There, other ways of life had survived only because of awkwardly independent souls from soiling the pea um, to Annie McSween. So I decided in the autumn to return to Ireland. I threw myself back into the writhing life around the Blasted Islands and meandered along the ragged bays and headlands of the Dingle Peninsula. I sat once again a mile offshore from stupendous cliffs in vast swell and spray, through which dolphins arced and gannets died. On the first morning, I overturned my boat to submerge myself in the sea and watch a pod of dolphins pass. I spent the afternoon with shivering body but ignited, elated mind. 
I paddled on, musing on Robinson's Aaron Dolphins, so perfectly commensurate with the way that they prompt the viewer to ask what it would mean for humans to fit so neatly into the world. Returning here had been a strategy to prompt ideas about the difference that seeing Britain and Ireland from their watery edges makes. You're pining, I can tell. <laughs> yes, I'm pine, pining at the moment too. <laughs> haven't headed back to the coastlines. Yeah, particularly difficult in lockdown. That was wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. Um, can I ask, is there another book on the way? Because it feels as if there might be. This doesn't feel like a completed journey to me. There is. Um, so I'm writing a book at the moment called Afloat, um, which is, it takes, it replaces the kayak with kind of traditional boats, wooden boats and canvas boats. And it started, it started in Ireland in February um, in a little, a little boat called a Bordomra that has been extinct since the 1940s. Um, and kind of reviving that, um, looking at the ways in which it's tied to the um, to the communities along that coastline and looking at the dynamics of kind of survival and disappearance of these kinds of boats and the ways of life that go with them. Um, and then it moves up to Fair Isle between Orkney and Shetland and then off around the North Atlantic. So Greenland, Newfoundland and down the east coast of the States until it reaches the Caribbean. Um, kind of tying again histories, natural histories and types of small boats um, together and getting lost in a lot more waves. Yeah, that's a really epic journey. And it sounds like it might take you a little while, but will be certainly a <laughs> wonderful read and perhaps one for the, the shortlist in, in 2022 <laughs> by the time you've finished it. So congratulations on being this year's shortlist. And thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, you've already mentioned what you think that we can do in a way as, as citizens, but would you have a call to action for listeners to the podcast as things you'd want them to do as a result of reading the book? I mean, obviously go out and buy the book first, everyone. Um, but what would you be your call to action for, for people? Um, I mean, my main call to action is just that as kind of English speakers often living in cities, um, we, are, we are both part of the culture that has been the big problem and part of the culture that is trying to create solutions. My instigation would be to people um, to look to other traditions as ways of doing that. So for me, the most exciting books about the natural world coming out at the moment are often books like um, Robin Wall Kemmer and Braden Sweetgrass, which is about um, Canadian First Nations traditions. Um, the ways of being in the world that other traditions have are often exactly what we need at the moment, whether those traditions are First Nations or are Scottish Gaelic. So I, I think that cultural diversity um, is kind of one of the best means that we have for um, generating biodiversity. I think we need to think of the cultural and the natural as being really intertwined. But as a historian, I think lots of problems for historians have come because historians have felt that history begins and ends within human society, not recognise that entanglement. Um, and I think it's the same for people interested in biodiversity. You can learn a lot from thinking through different things. Fascinating. A wonderful call to action. Thank you so much, David. Thank you. It's been delightful to talk to you. Thank you for joining us. It's been lovely. Um, Thank you so much. Good luck with the prize and, um, and thanks for sharing your passage with us. And we look forward to reading, I look forward to reading the whole book very soon. Brilliant. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Planet Pod in partnership with the Wainwright Prize. The Frayed Atlantic Edge by David Gange is published by HarperCollins and you can find details of it and all the other shortlisted books on the Wainwright Prize website, along with extracts. Or visit our website, theplanetpod.com, where you can catch up on interviews with other authors and subscribe to the podcast. Thanks for listening and goodbye. 
been listening to the Stories Behind the Books, the Planet Pod series on the Wainwright Prize 2020. You can find details of all the shortlisted authors on the Wainwright Prize website or on our Planet Pod website. Do look them up and find out more. Thanks for listening. <laughs>